0: Physics world. Hello and welcome to the Physics World weekly podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, we chat about the extraordinary life of Leo Szilard, the Hungarian-American physicist who envisaged nuclear weapons, but later opposed their use. But first, I'm in conversation with a member of a collaboration that aims to detect cosmic rays and ultimately high energy cosmic neutrinos by sending radar signals into an ice sheet and looking for reflections. Cosmic rays and cosmic neutrinos are high-energy particles from space that are constantly bombarding the Earth. They originate from beyond the solar system, and physicists are very keen to understand their origins. A team of physicists in the US, Belgium, and the Netherlands is developing a new way to detect these particles that involves looking for radar echoes in Antarctic ice. To talk about this radar echo telescope, I'm joined down the line from the University of Kansas by Stephen Prohira, who is co-principal investigator on the project. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Hamish. Uh, Happy to be here
0: so stephen can you can we start off by uh, you explaining a bit about cosmic rays and neutrinos? Where do physicists think they come from, and why do we want to understand more about them
1: sure so i 'll start with cosmic rays so cosmic rays uh, is sort of a a, a colloquial term for um, uh, charged, uh, protons, um, a charged particles so of protons or atomic nuclei, um, like an iron nucleus, for example, uh, that, um, as you said, bombard earth's atmosphere from, um, distant interstellar origins. Uh, and some of the, uh, very highest energy cosmic rays, which is, um, sort of what I've been working on studying and what lots of other people study, um, can have as much kinetic energy as a bird in flight contained in like a single nucleon. Um, So massive amounts of energy. Uh, And um, what's interesting about this is that um, there are very, very few astrophysical processes that can actually produce particles with 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 these energies and so that's why astrophysicists are super interested in in sort of figuring out um, where they come from Uh, and i'll stop there with the cosmic rays because that's where neutrinos kind of come in so neutrinos are uh, very weakly interacting subatomic particles Um, they're a fundamental particle um, and uh, they're quite interesting as you and I are speaking there's billions of them passing through our body right now they don't they only interact via the weak force um, not via the electromagnetic force Um, so they're able to pass through matter relatively unimpeded and at the very highest energies uh, it's believed that these super high-energy neutrinos are produced in the same sources or by the same physical mechanisms that produce cosmic rays and so if you can detect these ultra high-energy neutrinos you can detect where the cosmic rays come from. And you can't detect where the cosmic rays come from necessarily because, as I mentioned earlier, they're charged. So as they pass from, the, from whatever their source is to Earth, they're deflected in interstellar magnetic fields. And so you can't, if you detect them on Earth, they don't exactly point back to where they came from. Neutrinos, because they're neutral and because they can pass through matter relatively unimpeded, they can point back to their sources. So neutrinos are, are, are ultra high energy neutrinos are a, um, an important cosmic messenger. We call them cosmic messengers because they can point back to where they came from and maybe help identify some of these uh, uh, very high energy astrophysical sources.
0: And, and when you say astrophysical sources, Stephen, are you, are you talking about things like, um, I don't know, su- supernovas or uh, the collision of, black holes is it is it that sort of thing or, or the um, maybe emissions from a supermassive black hole would they all be the, the sort of candidates for these high-energy cosmic rays and neutrinos
1: yeah so that's a great question um, and I'm not an expert in the sources but um, it turns out that you're looking for things that are even more high energy than supernova when you're talking the energies that we're looking at. Um, so these are things like active galactic nuclei. So those are the, the that's emission from uh, you know supermassive black holes at the center of galaxies. Um, more recently, there's been some interest in in tidal disruption events as being possible candidates um, for something like this, uh, possibly gamma ray bursts. Uh, so there's a lot of different um, you, you know what we call source classes that could be producing these ultra energy particles Um, and uh, we just haven't detected all that many neutrinos in the very high energy regime um, to identify them so the ice cube neutrino experiment which is this um, magnificent experiment at the south pole that detects neutrinos using um, optical light uh, after they interact in the ice um, it has identified IceCube has identified um, a couple of source candidates, uh, astrophysical source candidates, um, and so there's some promising work being done in this, but but nothing super definitive just yet.
0: And so that's where the the radar echo telescope comes in. I'm guessing. Can you can you explain how this telescope works?
1: Sure. So, the idea behind the radar echo telescope is that um, when a neutrino interacts in a dense material like an ice sheet for example um, it will uh, if it interacts it produces this cascade of charged particles Um, and uh, so basically all of the energy of that well a significant fraction of that primary energy is, uh, is, is, is converted into particles in this cascade and as that Um, cascade is moving through the material Um, it's moving relativistically so roughly the speed of light as it's moving through the material it ionizes the material as it goes and it leaves behind the short-lived cloud of ionization so effectively free charges and you can bounce radio waves off of something like that Um, so uh, the idea is you broadcast radio waves into some volume You wait for one of these neutrino interactions to happen inside of that volume and then you're monitoring the same volume with receiving antennas and you can ideally record the reflection from uh, one of these neutrino uh, induced cascades in the ice so that's the basic principle behind the radar echo telescope
0: and am i right in thinking that the the higher the energy of the neutrino the the bigger the cascade it it produces and therefore the 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 stronger the echo is it is there a relationship there with energy can you can you can you do, you do you get an idea of the energy
1: yes definitely so uh the there's two there's a twofold answer to that question one is correct it is larger the second is that the ionization density is higher as well and that affects the um uh, the strength of the radar return that comes back to your receivers so we do have a way to um, figure out the energy of the primary neutrino we can we can ideally back that out uh, and then we can also most importantly for the astrophysics side um, sort of uh, point back to where it came from and you were interested in in both so, I myself personally am interested in the particle physics properties of neutrinos too, because i I didn't mention this earlier, but um, neutrinos are, are are something of a square peg and a round hole of the standard model um, of of particle physics in that um, they do have some properties. Uh, that aren't a part of the standard model. So by studying neutrinos at very high energies, you can actually work to constrain some interesting beyond standard model physics. Um, and so that's something that we hope that we can also do by characterizing um, the cascades and, and, and characterizing the number of neutrinos that you detect as a function of energy.
0: Okay. And, and the Radar Echo Telescope hasn't been built yet, but I understand that in 2020, you and your colleagues um, passed a, a major milestone when you did um, an experiment at the SLAC Accelerator in California. C- can you talk a bit about that experiment and, and what it told you about um, how the Radar Echo Telescope will work?
1: Sure. So in in 2018, actually, we, um, we went out to uh, the SLAC National Accelerator Center. It's a two-kilometer-long LINAC where electrons are accelerated to about 10 GeV. At the time, there was a facility there called End Station A. And so basically, if you imagine the linear accelerator is just a line with the source at one end and the target at the other, Partway down, there was this, like, magnet, and it would just switch the beam over into this other beam line. And then over in this other beam line, there was a room, and you could set up experiments. And in End Station A, it was, there's been a lot of experimentation done there. It was, uh, it was where some of the earliest evidence for quarks was discovered, um, lots of different stuff. So what we did was we set up a plastic target um, in front of the beam line. And we use plastic because it's a lot easier to, you know, move around than ice. Uh, And then we um, slammed their electron beam into this. So their electron beam is about uh, a billion electrons, each at about uh, 10 billion electron volts, all contained in like about a cubic millimeter or so. So very, 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 very high energy density. We slammed it into this plastic target and produced a cascade similar to what we would expect in nature. And we were able to record a radar echo off of this. Um, so this was important because it's it's sort of demonstrated in the lab that this idea of the interaction in a dense material was something that you could reflect radar off of. However, it's very important to note that an electron beam into plastic is very different from a neutrino interaction in ice. So we did pass a milestone that showed that you could reflect radio off of a you know high-energy particle cascade um but it's uh there's still a long way to go before we can say that this is something that works for neutrino interactions in nature
0: oh okay so so does that mean that you're going to have to be that you're going to have to do further experiments to 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 show that or or are you pretty confident that you, you can carry it over
1: uh, we're definitely going to be doing more experiments because you know if we, if we went and we instrumented some big volume of ice with the radar echo telescope and we saw some blip on our on our screens, I'm not sure if I would believe it, even even though I'm the one that put it out there. So uh, we have a uh, an, an, an intermediate step that we're actually working on right now, um, and that's called the radar echo telescope for cosmic rays, uh, and so the radar echo telescope for cosmic rays. Um, instead of using neutrinos in dense ice, and I should also clarify that ice cube has detected the highest energy neutrino events to date. And those are at about 10 to the 15, 10 to the 16 electron volts. Um, RET is targeting higher energies and many other experiments are as well. There's, um, experiments that use the Iscarian effect. Um, there are, um, which detect primary radio from these neutrino-induced cascades. There's experiments that um, try to detect tau neutrinos um, when they decay in the air after having interacted in the Earth. Um, and um, so there's many experiments like the um, Iscarian radio array, uh, Pueo, which is a balloon-borne experiment. Um, there's uh, Beacon, Toroje, there's a lot of these, uh, a lot of these experiments that are, that are being developed around the world. And RET is just one of them. So we're looking at this energy range above what's been detected to date. Um, so we're looking at a very small rate of you know, signal. So anyway, um, that's all to say that we would like to test on something that has a higher event rate. Um, And so for that, we're looking to cosmic rays. Now, you can't detect cosmic rays in the air, which is something that maybe we can talk about um, using radar. But it turns out that if you go to some high elevation ice sheet, a cosmic ray, when it interacts in the upper atmosphere, produces a cascade, just like a neutrino interaction in the ice. That cascade hits the ground. And that's actually how most cosmic rays are detected is by detecting the charged particle content at the ground. But if you go to some very high elevation ice sheet, for example, these high energy cosmic rays, very high energy cosmic rays above about 10 to the 16 electron volts, a significant fraction of the primary energy actually hits the ground. And so you'll get this second cascade that's initiated just beneath the surface of the ice. So what we're going to do is we're going to go and we're going to set up a small radar system just beneath the surface of the ice, and we're going to trigger on the charged particles that come down and then try to bounce radio waves off of that secondary induced cascade just beneath the surface of the ice. And we're gonna use that as our effectively as our in nature test beam. So very similar to what we did at Slack, but using, uh, uh, using um, the test beam that nature provides at a much higher energy
0: and and when you do this um, experiment uh, looking for the cosmic rays is it is it just going to be a proof of concept experiment or are you going to be able to um, observe maybe some you know some new properties of cosmic rays that other experiments can't
1: see at the moment that's a good question it's First and foremost, a proof-of-concept experiment for the, for the goal of a future neutrino telescope. Um, but what's nice about cosmic rays is that they've been very well studied for many, many years, and lots of brilliant folks have developed um, uh, really robust ways to, to, to study them. And so we're actually going to benefit from that, to know that we're seeing, to be confident that we're, that we're seeing what we think we're seeing. So, for example... You expect a certain rate of cosmic rays, uh, a certain flux of cosmic rays, you know, over our experimental footprint per unit time. So if we see a trigger rate that makes sense according to what we know about the cosmic ray flux spectrum, we can be confident that the signals that we're seeing are cosmic rays. So um, we can sort of exploit that, um, that knowledge, but, you know, you never know what we'll see. Um, I'm, I'm definitely, uh, I'm definitely not one to think that I know exactly what we'll, what we'll see when we actually turn things on. We have a very good idea of course, but you know, surprises are always out there
0: yeah that's that's the beauty of science and uh, i think that 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 takes us very nicely on to my next question you you hinted that um that this isn't possible uh to do in the air and th- th- there's a really good story behind this and and like a lot of stories um you know of, of physics that came out of the 1940s um it has something to do with with radar <laughs> Which is, I, I always find fascinating, the connections between the development of radar in the, in the Second World War and, um, and, and, and a lot of physics that happened afterwards. And it, it turns out that the radar echo method was first proposed in the 1940s by the British physicist Patrick Blackett and Bernard Lovell. W- what was their original idea?
1: Yeah, so, Hamish, I'm glad you asked me about this because um, it's a story I like to tell because it's not the typical linear scientific discovery that's presented in textbooks. You know, this scientist discovered this, and this scientist discovered this, and then now we have, you know, relativity. Um, it's more fits and starts and accidents and mistakes. And uh, and this story is kind of... Um, kind of one of those. So in, in 19, uh, in, in, in the late 1930s, um, so uh, early 1940s. So in the outbreak of world war II, um, there was a frenzy of work in Britain being done on developing radar. And this was some of the most, these were, these were the most advanced, uh, uh, investigations into radar anywhere and blackett and Lovell were um, interested in uh in these radar systems and working on them uh in manchester at a place called jodrell bank which at the time was basically just an open field and they had these mobile radar carts that they could move around and they were using them both to test but also to prepare for uh, uh detecting uh aircraft and when they turned them on, they noticed these reflections were happening all the time from the upper atmosphere. So, and they thought for a long time it was instrumentational glitches, um, but and they and they didn't know exactly what they were. And a few years earlier, um, some folks uh, like Pierre Auger uh, had theorized that a cosmic ray particle arriving at the upper atmosphere. Um, of sufficient energy could produce something called an extensive air shower so this cascade that we've been talking about through the atmosphere and so blackett and Lowell thought well maybe what we're seeing is the reflection of our radar signal off of the ionization produced by these cosmic rays in the atmosphere so they put their heads together and they wrote a short paper in 1940 i think it was published in 1941 Uh, about um, detecting cosmic rays with radar. And they found that with a very modest system, you could detect uh, cosmic rays in the upper atmosphere. So um, right after this paper came out, uh, this dude named um, Eckersley read the paper and noticed that they had this glaring mistake, like many orders of magnitude mistake that would effectively invalidate their calculations. Um, And so he wrote it up in a letter and he sent it to Blackett. Um, Blackett was like the... Uh, the guy running the show, and, and Lovell worked for him. And he basically said, this won't work, um, and here's why. And in the hustle and bustle of World War II, um, no one ever saw the letter. So Blackett and Lovell kept working for years, um, trying to build bigger and better basically, transmitters to try to detect this stuff. So in, like, 1945, um, Blackett happened to, d- to see the letter. And he said, oh, okay, well, this might be why we haven't seen anything yet. Um, but in that early letter, Eckersley sort of, you know, um, hedged and said, well, if you had a bigger transmitter, maybe you could do it. So they kept building bigger and bigger transmitters, um, uh, which they had been doing already. And finally, I think in 1946, they discovered that all of the reflections that they were seeing were actually reflections off of meteors because meteors will actually, yeah, meteors will ionize a very similar trail through the upper atmosphere. um, And you can bounce radio waves off of them. Um, And this is like a well-known thing. Now I've actually done it, you know, myself. It's like a fun thing to do during a meteor shower. Um, And you can detect uh, reflections from beyond the horizon. So this was one of the only ways you could do that. Um, at you know higher frequencies before satellites um so anyway uh by the time they figured this out though they'd already built what at the time i think was the largest radio telescope on the planet and even though the the you know the thrust of that research was to try to detect cosmic rays uh that was completely never going to work um they'd they'd managed to build you know what turned out to be an extremely useful instrument to radio astronomy, and Jodrell Bank Observatory still exists. Um, and, you know, Lovell wrote this uh, sort of um, reminiscence in 1991, and he contends that if they'd seen the letter when it was sent, they probably never would have kept building any of those large telescopes, and the observatory might not exist today.
0: Yeah, that's, yeah, that, that's amazing, because of course now Jodro Bank is, you know, it's, it's an iconic location in, 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 in the UK. It's, you know, it's even a tourist destination. There's a, I think there's a festival of music mm-hmm. and, you know, sort of literature that, that's held there every year. And it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing to, you know, to, to hear that it, it, it was almost built by mistake or, yeah. or on a mistake, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which, yeah, is, it's which is a great story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but uh, but hopefully, well, I, it looks like you know that, that things are going to be different for, um, for your radar echo telescope.
1: So first I should explain why it works in ice but not air. Um, so the reason is simply that the in-ice cascade is tremendously more dense than the in-air cascade because ice is about a thousand times more dense than air. Um, so a few groups, not including me, uh, realized this in uh, like around 2013, including my Copi on RET, uh, de Vries, um, and they started experimenting and theorizing about this, uh, leading to the work that eventually became RET.
0: What's the timeline for um, for the project? You, you said um, is it, you said that you're going to be um, installing it uh, or, or a system at high altitude in mm-hmm. Antarctica. When when is that going to happen?
1: Well, uh, so the original plan was to, was to deploy to Antarctica. It turns out that we've had a little bit of a change, um, uh, mostly due to logistics, um, but we're going to be deploying to Greenland um, this summer, actually. Um, so we're going to be deploying uh, this, the radar echo telescope for cosmic rays. Um, you know, so after talking about how you can't do this with cosmic rays, this is, remember, the radar reflections from the secondary cascade in the ice, uh, we're going to try to deploy that system this summer in Greenland and um it's kind of an interesting fact that i didn't know until i went there but the south pole for example is a, about 3 kilometers in altitude um and the uh, the greenland ice sheet is similar um so they're they're very very high altitude and um that uh is beneficial for this uh uh for the cosmic ray experiment because the higher the closer you are to the primary interaction point of the cosmic ray which is up about 10 kilometers in the atmosphere the more energy reaches the ground so the more energetic your your end glacial cascade is um, so that's the plan for um retcr and ideally we'll be able to get enough data um you know this summer uh, to more, you know, next summer to, uh, to, to, to know whether or not this is an effective method. Um, because it's never been tested in nature. There could be things we haven't thought of, you know, the history of this field kind of keeps us humble (laughs) because, uh, the story I just told, you know, you can miss a, miss something or, or not consider something in full detail. And, uh, and and maybe there's something that we haven't thought of that will make it not work but should it work the way that we think it will um then we'll look to the larger neutrino telescope and the location for that is is tbd but any large um uh large ice sheet will do uh, basically any large uniform radio transparent material would do and there are several of them on the planet. You can think of salt, you can think of sand. Um, but it turns out that the places that have those are actually harder to get to than than the poles, uh, than the polar regions, even though those are quite a challenge to get to as well.
0: I'm guessing that you, you couldn't go underwater because the, that the ra- radar waves wouldn't go through the water. Is that right?
1: Yeah, water is such a weird um, molecule that it has totally different... Um, properties to radio transmission in liquid and solid form. So in solid form, water ice is very radio transparent, um, but not very optically transparent. Um, but water, uh, liquid water is very optically transparent and not very radio transparent at all. So um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a curious little molecule.
0: Well, that's great, Stephen. Thanks so much for, for talking to, uh, to me about that. And um, I hope uh, things go v- very well with uh, the next stages of the Radar Echo Telescope. Thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Well, thanks, Hamish. It was a pleasure. Yeah. The
0: Hungarian-American physicist Leo Szilard is famous for his role in persuading US President Roosevelt to build an atomic bomb during the Second World War, fearing that the Germans would get there first. We've just published a comprehensive article about Szilard on the Physics World website. And to chat about this fascinating physicist, I'm joined by Editor-in-Chief Mateen Durrani. Hi, Mateen.
2: Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Nice to be back.
0: Now, a theme that, that goes through this article, Mateen, is that Zillard saw the connections between world events and physics. And he also sought to influence the outcomes of these connections. C- can you talk a bit about that? What, what, why was Zillard so wise in, uh, in seeing the implications of the physics that was being developed in the, in the mid-20th uh, century?
2: that's a brilliant question hamish and we have to wind the clock back to um his birth in 1898 so he was um Szilard was born in budapest in hungary in 1898 to a jewish family and he after the first world war he was sort of sickened by the anti-semitism in in hungary so he actually went to berlin to germany and got to know einstein and was happy to get away from hungary but the irony is, of course, the Nazis came to power and he realised that um, things were getting very dicey for people with a Jewish background like himself. So he left Germany in 1933 and came to London. And it was there. And there's a famous story that, you know, we start the feature, which is by Istvan Hargitay, who's a physical chemist in, uh, from, from Budapest. Great story about how um, Szilard was walking in London at the crossroads between Southampton Row and russell square and as he was waiting at the traffic lights he realized that um it occurred to him that if you could have a nuclear chain reaction that could lead to such prodigious amounts of energy that you could have a very powerful bomb and as he crossed into the road when the lights turned green he suddenly realized i don't know if he said shit but he realized that this could lead to an atomic bomb and um, he was so concerned that he actually tried to patent the idea in fact he did Get a patent which he awarded was awarded to the British Admiralty. He was trying to keep it quiet. He realized immediately the consequence of this basic physics. In the meantime, he went to America and he he went to Princeton. And as you say, he was there and he persuaded Einstein, who he'd known in Berlin, to write to Roosevelt to um, calling on the Americans to develop an atomic bomb. Um, so, yeah, he realized the importance of basic physics. To, the, the the consequences could be huge. And he wanted the Americans to get a bomb before the Germans could get their hands on one.
0: And even though he was adamant that uh, the Allies needed to develop an atomic bomb, he, he changed his mind on that. And wasn't he famous for being very pragmatic about changing his mind?
2: yeah, that's right. I mean, I didn't know this until I started working on the article that after the uh, second World war finished in the summer of nineteen forty five with Germany defeated, he realized that there was no need for the Americans to use a bomb, and he actually tried to persuade America not to drop an atomic bomb. and they you know that that advice wasn't heeded and bombs were dropped on Japan. Um, so he was someone who was always happy to change his mind in, in the as a result of development of events you know, he didn't stick to his predetermined beliefs if he felt that it was necessary to change his view. And, you know, that's quite an admirable thing. We, you know, all of us like to sort of think that we're right. And um, someone to admit they're wrong and actively seek to change events, despite what something you've said in the past, is, is quite unusual. And so it's a fascinating theme that runs throughout this article. And it gives various other examples of where he also changed his mind. Um But I'll let Listeners read that article to find out what those were,
0: and and just to give a, a bit of a hint, does, does one of them have to do with the use of atomic bombs for engineering, sort of mega engineering projects? Is that something that he looked at?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. Immediately after the Second World War, he used to go to these intellectual salons in um, in, in 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 a house in in Manhattan, and uh, he had the idea there that you could use atomic bombs to effectively use a sort of as kind of civil engineering purposes where you would carve out a harbour or in fact what he thought about was redirecting the flow of rivers in the uh, Siberian or Northern Canada so rather than flowing to the Arctic Sea they would go south and irrigate wasteland um, and, and, and kind of reinvigorate these these areas agriculturally that was actually something that 10 years later Edward Teller famously championed but he had the idea quite a long time before um, I think he eventually dropped the idea because he realized it was a bit a bit crazy, but yeah, it was another another occasion where he 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 sort of had quite interesting ideas that evolved with time,
0: yeah, that is an interesting one because, as you say, that idea it sounds like a teller idea, isn't it? It's something you'd associate with Teller, yeah, he, but it's interesting that Zillard came up with it ten years earlier, exactly
2: yeah, yeah, I mean t- the thing that Teller did was the thing called Project Plowshare, and he ran an atomic energy commission thing to sort of champion this this idea which fortunately didn't ever happen um it sounds a bit mad using atomic bombs to blow up the land that's needed for a harbor but you know that was a a, you know an idea that people had
0: thanks mateen for giving us a taster of that article which you can find on the physics world website just look for the title leo zillard the physicist who envisaged nuclear weapons but later opposed their use I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Stephen Prohira and Mateen Durrani for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week when we'll be looking at how large language models, also known as chatbots, are being used in physics research and education. Until then, please do listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester speaks to two people who are involved with the European Space Agency's Para-Astronaut Feasibility Project. This looks at how human spaceflight can be made more accessible. The episode is called Making Spaceflight Accessible to People with Physical Disabilities, and you can find it on the Physics World website Or at your favorite podcast provider, Physics World.